The ripple effects of Hamas's massacre of 1,400 people in Israel on October 7th are still being felt. The dead were mostly civilians, many entire families, and we continue to identify and bury others. Israelis were the primary target, but our pain is shared by our diaspora brothers and sisters just as five years ago this week, we here in Israel shared the shock and pain of the deadly shooting at Pittsburgh's Tree of Life Synagogue. Here this week from New York to show his love and solidarity with Israelis is Rabbi Rick Jacobs, the president of the Union for Reform Judaism, which represents some two million Jews in North America. We speak about how Jews, some from the most progressive edges, are pulling together today with some humanitarian caveats. This is a moment when we have to be leaning into the kind of response that the world doesn't like to see. When we have a strong military response to protect our community, our families, our country, and at the same time, can we hold in whatever portion of our moral stance in the world that we do not look at the suffering of innocence, not the suffering of those who are bringing this assault. That's part of us retaining our Jewish religious sensibilities, which we can't lose ever. So this week, I, Amanda Borshaldan, ask Rabbi Rick Jacobs, what matters now? The Technion Israel Institute of Technology is where some of Israel's brightest minds ask the biggest question of all. What if? What if they could take on the world's biggest challenges? What if they could develop life-changing environmental, scientific, health, medical, and technological discoveries that will make a huge impact on Israel and the planet? But they don't just ask the question, they answer it too. They turn those ideas into reality. They make them happen. To see just some of the incredible things they've achieved, get the Technion Booklet of Wonders at ats.org slash wonders. We hope it inspires you to give them your support so they can keep doing what they do best. The American Technion Society. World-changing discoveries by Israel's brightest minds made possible by you. Rick, thank you so much for joining me today in Jerusalem's Nomi Studios. It's an honor to be with you. Our lives have changed since October 7th. Everyone here in Israel feels it. I'm sure Jews around the world do too. So I ask you, Rick, we're now 20 days into this war. What matters now? What matters is something profound shifted on October 7th. Uh, Obviously, the state of Israel and Jewish people have known challenges. Uh, Israelis have known challenges pretty much every day. But when we awoke to the news of what had transpired and what was still transpiring throughout that Shabbat Shemini Yatzer Simchat Torah, it, it just, it literally went through us and shook us to the core, obviously, how much the more so here in Israel. But I, you know, listen, before October 7th, we were arguing and debating about everything. We're Jewish people. We're Jewish leaders. We debated the judiciary, halakha, everything. But in that moment, something just shifted to say, 
there's a more profound call in this moment, which is to stand intensely with the people and the state of Israel and to galvanize our community in every way. There's no left and right. There's no orthodox and secular and reform. There's just a community that understood that witnessing the slaughter of our people in their homes, in the celebrated Jewish state, which has all the ability, we thought, to defend our citizens everywhere, every moment, I think it, it just awakened a sense that we're vulnerable, even when we're strong. And I think it also reminded us that underneath it all, there's something that does bind us together. And I think we know that in our intellectual selves, but we knew it at a very deep, visceral level. And so I think not only is it, you know, in recent memory, I think it will be something we will recount for centuries to come. I agree with you. To me, it's one of those moments like watching the Twin Towers fall. I understand from my father when JFK was assassinated, things of this stature. And I want you to just take me through how you learned of this massacre. Well, it was certainly, um, it's not the case that every Shabbat that I'm glued to any media, but the word came, my, my phone which I checked because we have a, a vast movement and we know that there are oftentimes things that happen that I need to be aware. So when I just, in the morning of that Shabbat, Simchat Torah, just checked my phone, it, it had just exploded with, you know, direct texts and emails from friends here saying something profound and overwhelming is happening. And then I just, you know, I, I just leaned into it and had to uh, stay glued to technology to find out what we could do in those moments, even those first moments as we were just discovering the extent and hearing the accounts of some of our friends who were in their safe rooms right along the border in Kfar Aza and Nachal Oz and just witnessing in real time their desperation, their you know, pleading somebody come and help us. And then, of course, right away, activating throughout our movement that we always, in a moment like that, have to think about security. Just not someday, you know, a week from now, but right in that moment. And to figure out quickly, how do we mobilize our community on a holiday, on a Shabbat, when people were doing what they should do, which is to celebrate and to be um, in that joyful moment. So that was that Shabbat that was not Shabbat. Immediately after seeing what was happening in Israel, your head went to protecting your communities throughout the diaspora. It went first and foremost to trying to understand what we needed to do to be helpful to our, our people here. They, they were the ones literally on the front lines. So let me be really clear. That was number one, two, and three on the to-do list. And to figure out also quickly in terms of the U.S. government, uh, we were a North American movement, we're Canada and U.S., but in this moment to make sure that the U.S. government was tuned in. Um, we don't have an ambassador here at the moment. We hope that we soon will. But, you know, really to make sure that the powers that be, and there's obviously, as we've seen in recent days, quite a lot of commitment. But in that moment, we felt so anxious and vulnerable and we didn't know, none of us knew the extent. So people said, you know, the 100 murdered, and then 200, and it just kept growing. 
and the desperation of the people who were, you know, in their safe rooms with their kids, telling them to be quiet. And I'm thinking to myself, how would I, when my kids were little, to ask them to be quiet for 10 minutes, let alone nine hours? So it, it quickly, you know, kind of, it would ratchet it up to a full emergency on every level. And um, I think the question of how to protect our communities here was in that mix, but it was clear where the absolute danger was, where the um, the slaughter was happening, and um, we didn't have a full sense of how many hostages. It just it just unfolded and got more horrific as more accounts and more news came across, and still is still, and pretty much immediately. Your movement, other movements throughout the U.S. started holding vigils. Tell me about how that unfolded. So if you think about we were actually pretty organized about vigils before October 7th, and they were obviously pro-democracy, pro-Jewish democratic state. And we had a wonderful, amazing partnership with the Israelis, who are not just in New York, but San Francisco, Los Angeles, Florida, all around. That same network in one second pivoted and said, okay, we need to show up, we need to be public, and we need to be loud in this moment of not just celebrating Israel, but standing with. And right away, there were counter-protests. Right away, I'm in New York City. There were right away people who were not protesting on behalf of the dignity and well-being of the Palestinian people. That's that's legitimate. We can not just, uh, you know, say that's okay, we can actually, uh, you know, bless the respectful uh, protests. These were not. These were pro-Hamas. These were celebrating the butchering of our people. So uh, on a very basic level, we were not prepared that anyone who would be part of our modern world could witness or have any sense of what was unfolding and say, yes, but that's what we saw and it just encouraged not just a few of us, but a lot of us, including the very progressive members of our community, to say, this is different. This Something has now changed in terms of our understanding of our role, our role as Jews, as supporters, progressive supporters of Israel, and quickly the idea that this was a war against Hamas. And they did something so egregious, so you know beyond what anyone had imagined, that we knew that there had to be a response other than hoping things would get better. That's not a response, that's not a plan, and that's not what the Jewish community in North America is busy doing. You are obviously part of coexistence efforts, and I wonder if there was any kind of conversation between you and any kind of Muslim leadership to come out and condemn what is happening. Uh, I will just be clear that the most immediate interfaith uh, colleagues who reached out were more in the Christian community, uh, my phone was filled with those expressions of solidarity, including from people I think that the wider community would say are not strong supporters of Israel. They understood something different was unfolding, and I was heartened by it. And my request is not just thank you, but could you post that? Could you say it publicly? It would really be important. And there are Muslim colleagues with, with whom I have that relationship. Uh, some of them are not Middle Eastern Muslims, and for them, it's usually a little bit easier for them to navigate those politics. But there were also expressions of solidarity. Again, not you know the whole project of the Jewish people, not the whole project of the State of Israel, but we are outraged. 
We, we cannot imagine what it's like to go through this as a Jewish community. And the same thing that Joe Biden said when he was here, you're not alone. Those were expressions that we received. And locally, I heard from rabbis across North America that their local partners, again, not all of them, some of them were quiet for too long. And there was a collective sense of, we're here, we'd love to hear from our partners, we'd love to hear from the people who we know are our friends, but this is a moment we really need you. Um, but many of them did come through, you know, more slowly. And um, I think it was also for people who are very involved in the political world, who probably define themselves on the very progressive side of the spectrum. I think this moment also pulled them into a, a different mindset, not that they forgot or let go of their political commitments, but to say, you know what, it, my political commitments do not include endangering the lives of families, of people, and the people who live along the Gaza border, as you know, and I've spent a lot of time in those communities, are among the most idealistic and the most committed to building a shared society. It is ironic in a way that these people who are being held captive by Hamas are also the people who drove perhaps their family members to the hospital to get treatment for cancer. They are the peace activists of Israel, so many of them living in these kibbutzim along the border, these secular kibbutzim. I I can't even fathom what's what's going through anyone's heads right now. I want to drill down a little bit more on the progressives, though. And many have privately said to me, hey, we Jews showed up. We showed up for Black Lives Matter. We showed up for many other different movements. And we're just not seeing our partners in activism show up for us. Do you feel that is true? I don't feel that in a general sense. I, I think there are certainly many people who did show up, uh, many people who did reach out. There are people who... We work shoulder to shoulder on civil rights and on making a society in North America that is a place where people of all colors, all backgrounds, all genders, all sexualities can live in dignity and peace and equality. And I think that there are people who, you know, just saw Israel as the political establishment. And the voices of this current Israeli government have not been voices that have frankly, agreed with liberal Jews. It hasn't agreed with a lot of progressives. But this wasn't about a new politician or a policy of this government. This was an attack on human beings, on families. And so I did feel um, that not all, but many, and I would say some of the most progressives were the ones who reached out and expressed in no, you know, clouded, uh, well, you know, both sides, none of that, and also, are you okay? What what can I do? And I, I meant in that moment to, you know, not just thank them, but to ask that in any way in front of their congregations, in front of their wider communities, to be able to withstand. And we knew at that moment also, this was likely not going to be a day, a week. And we understood that immediately there would be a whole lot of solidarity, a lot of empathy, but over the course of a, a campaign, uh, a, a war as we have at this moment, that the, the tide of opinion would turn quickly as Israel did what it needed to do, which is to push back against Hamas, not against all Palestinians. It's not a war against them. So in this moment, frankly, I would argue it's more challenging and it's more required. And that's where we're really trying to work hard 
to solidify some of those coalitions of uh, faith and conscience. For sure. We definitely see it on the international stage that the tide has turned. I wouldn't say is turning. The tide turned perhaps even a week ago in terms of international media. And of course, there's so much suffering in Gaza. There's no doubt. There's no objective doubt about that. But yet, we wonder here in Israel, so many of us, how can we lose this moment of moral clarity that children were decapitated, raped, taken hostage, grandmothers, Holocaust survivors, put on motorcycles, beaten with sticks. We've heard the testimony already of those who were freed. How can it be that Israel is not able to operate in Gaza without world condemnation? Well, I think you're absolutely right. And as we stand, you know, a thousand percent with Israel in this crisis, this disaster, this this moment of um, of overwhelming pain and loss, at that same moment, we are a people that also knows that the suffering of the innocent is painful. There's a commentary on this week's Torah portion. I'm not sure exactly when people will be hearing this, but in Parashat Lech Lecha, in chapter 15, right after Avram, he's not yet Avraham, rescues his nephew Lot, who's been taken hostage. Like you, you open the Torah, you say, excuse me, how did they know that we'd be reading this week and need to hear these words? And he's able to, you know, he, he gets a, a military band together and fights and wins and, and liberates his, uh, his family member. So it, it, it tells us that's also what people need in moments. You know, sometimes I think of Avra more like Elie Wiesel or Martin Buber, but here he's more like Gary Cooper. He's out there fighting. In chapter 15, it opens with Altira, Altira Avram, don't be afraid. And the Midrash says, why, why was he afraid? Maybe he was afraid there was going to be another attack. It says in the Midrash Rabbah, he was afraid because he might have killed an innocent person in the war that he just fought. That wasn't written by a reform rabbi in the 21st century. It was written centuries ago. This is also part of our DNA. It's part of what makes us who we are. So we can be 100% supportive of Israel and the IDF in responding in a way we have to. We have to protect our families. We have to protect our country. And it's not going to happen by letting Hamas continue with its military strength, keeping probably millions of people hostage in Gaza. But also, they're not, they're not trying to, you know, kind of make life unpleasant. They'd like us not to be here. They'd like to wipe us off the planet. And they don't also only focus on Israel. They focus on Jews. So this is a moment we can't just sort of sing, you know, Ose Shalom, Odiavo Shalom. This is a moment when we have to be leaning into the kind of response that the world doesn't like to see us when we have a strong military response to protect our community, our families, our country. And at the same time, can we hold in whatever portion of our moral stance in the world that we do not look at the suffering of innocence, not the suffering of those who are bringing this assault, that's part of us retaining our Jewish religious sensibilities, which we can't lose ever. You're listening to this podcast, so I know you care about the war in Israel right now. 
And you've been reading the headlines. Massacre in Gaza. Genocide perpetrated by Hamas. No, by Israel. But if you've been listening to this podcast long enough, you know one thing. This stuff seems complicated. And honestly, no one can really just pick a side or decide an opinion without really learning. Without really knowing what you're talking about. And that's where this podcast comes in. Check out Unpacking Israeli History, now in its sixth season. They have episodes with topics ranging from what is Hamas anyway, to whether Israel should ransom captured soldiers, and the history of Israel and its disengagement from Gaza in 2005. Unpacking Israeli History cuts through the noise and helps you understand Israel's present through understanding Israel's history. So, educate yourself. Learn the history behind the headlines. Find Unpacking Israeli History wherever you listen to your podcasts. There are so many who say Hamas was voted into power in a freeish election in the Gaza Strip, voted in 2006 and assumed power in 2007. So in this way, every resident of the Gaza Strip is a Hamas supporter. What would you say to that? I think that's a very simplistic read. I've heard it before. Uh, I've heard it on, you know, some of the last few days here. I don't think that there's something called free elections in Gaza. I mean, yes, and 15 years plus ago doesn't mean that they are uh, endorsed by the people to do what they're doing. I mean, can you imagine living through what they've now been having to live through? So I don't think that they can claim the support of the people of Gaza. At the same time, you're right. Um, they also are angry, and they've chosen this leadership. But at the same time, we don't we don't target civilians. This is you know one of our remarkable staff members here is doing his miluim doing his education, and they work on Ruch Sahal, you know, the ethics code of the IDF, and just reminding the soldiers as they're about to go in, you know, for this ground incursion or wherever they're serving, this is part of what it means to serve in the Israel Defense Forces. This is part of who we are. And I think that's critical. So we don't target civilians. Are civilians uh, harmed in the conduct of war? Yes. But we're not targeting them. So I think that's also a difference. It's one thing to say, you know, you, you voted or you didn't vote, you currently support or you don't support. But civilians also, you know, are people we should be worrying about and not making. Now, Hamas targeted civilians. They deliberately, we know the plans that they had when they came across the border. They were looking for families. They went into these communities. They knew maps. They knew where people were. So to me, that's a, a moral, you know, opposite approach. So I think these are complex issues on some level, but on another level, they're not. Of course, Hamas is embedded within the civilian population. It's like sifting for gold to find the Hamas versus the rest of the population. Of course, there's going to be collateral damage. And already, you talked about the progressives getting into the the Jewish peoplehood a little bit more, but already we're seeing splinters. And of course, if not now, has already taken stances and had protests and things of that nature. The life on campus is always fraught, especially this age group when everything is so clear and yet perhaps not fully understood. They're standing up, they're speaking out loudly 
against Israel right now, and many of them Jews. How do you speak to them? Well, first of all, let's be clear about the size of that group. There was a small group that was in the U.S. Capitol. They had a protest. And I know in Israel, as I'm traveling through these last days, people assume, well, that's the reform movement. That is not the reform movement. Our stance, we're the largest Zionist organization. We stand with Israel. Are there people who hold dissonant views within our movement? Yes. Within the wider Jewish community? Yes. So let's be clear about the size of those groups. But my feeling is, I, I want to talk to them. I want to be engaged with them. I'm not writing them off. I'm not saying, well, you know, we all disagree. I want to get into a serious debate, discussion, and we do before October 7th, since October 7th. And I also want, you know, people who are listening to the podcast to know that we're almost 2 million people, according to the, um, the Pew surveys of the last, you know, two surveys. It, it's not like a little sliver that are with Israel. It's the overwhelming majority. And every one of our synagogues had vigils for Israel. And they invited their local faith communities, and they came and filled our sanctuaries and stood with us in public spaces. This is the face of our movement. And there are also some who, in this moment, choose to be outside that pale. But I would tell you, I think many of those progressives actually were shaken and had to rethink even some of the ways in which they speak out and when you speak out and how you speak out. So those also feel like a very important part of our conversation. But I think it's really important for the wider Jewish community to know, you know, in this moment, we're organizing our communities to be adopting um, the hostages individually so they can feel a sense of connection. We're doing that with the conservative movement and the Orthodox Union. Why? Because outside of Israel, we all seem to work together. How about that? That'd be a good thing for the state of Israel to notice, that we actually have a greater sense of Klal Yisrael, Achdut Yisrael, the unity of the Jewish people. And those are the things that I would put on the headlines. Those are the things I would say, this is the big takeaway. And here are some other stories that are worth hearing as well. The life on campus over the past 20 years has been difficult for many Jews. You'd agree with that? Uh, for sure. But I also think, and again, the rise in anti-Semitism isn't only the rise in the whole question of Israel-Palestine. Uh, we've also seen over the last you know, half decade the increase in the white nationalists, the very you know deadly forms of anti-Semitism, and we feel that in our communities, and we also feel that on campus. We also know that um, the sort of dominant view of the progressive world is that, uh, you know, Palestinians are the, the victims and Israel is always the aggressor, kind of like the story of the hospital when it was bombed. The story was already written. People didn't need to know, what are the facts? I don't need to know the facts. I know Israel must be guilty. And of course, it came out that Israel was not responsible. Uh, but the story was already out there. And I think that on campus, for our progressive students who do stand with the uh, the students of color, they do stand up for the oppression against LGBTQ students, and they do stand up for all of the things that have been going on politically in Washington in the previous administration. And there are these are essential things. And in some cases, a lot of dissonance when it came to the subject of Israel. And I think for us, we're raising a whole new generation that knows how to hold liberal Jewish values, strong connections to Israel. And by the way, we know Israel isn't just the government. 
It's a group of people who hold all kinds of views. And when we bring more of our students, as we do, to Israel before they go to college, they have a first-person narrative. They can say when they get to campus and someone says, Israel is, you say, you know, I have a lot of friends in Israel. That's not something I've, I've ever heard before. And let me tell you what I know. That's a very different thing than trying to get them to memorize talking points or debating points. And they get there, you know, and they start yelling back. But to make this part of who they are. And we're doing this in a wonderful way with the Ministry of Diaspora Affairs. It was created in the previous um, government with uh, Nachman Shai, who said, what can we do together? And we just had our Israel fellows. They gathered in uh, our camp in Georgia this past Shabbat. And they were learning all the tools that they need in their toolbox to, first of all, make sense of what's happening in Israel and also uh, in, in the Palestinian territories, and how they would be leaders among their peers. Not just having, I went to Israel, here are my pictures, I had a great time. That's wonderful. That's not enough. I want them, and through our program, we want to give them the ability to not have to take the talking points of the far right, but who they are, consistent with their values to say, my values lead me to love Israel. My values lead me to stand up for these commitments. And now I'm actually getting a little bit more practice. Also, how do I show up on social media? I see some of my peers posting some really harsh things. Do I just duck and turn my phone off and say, you know, I hope it's going to get better? Or do I find a way to engage in a constructive manner? Those are the things that we're actually working very intensely on. So we're not just watching this thing unfold on the campuses and saying, man, this is really serious. I, I, I don't know. But what, what are we doing in educating a new generation so that they have both facts and commitments and experiences that allow them to live out these commitments? It sounds like a real plan for proactive nuance in a way. I want to go back to the idea of anti-Semitism. And one of your first statements was, how can I protect my communities? And do you feel that right now during this war that your communities are in danger? We clearly know there are more threats. And we met with um, the Homeland Secretary uh, Mayorkas twice in the last two weeks. And he's been monitoring, working closely with the ADL, with the Secure Communities Network. We work very seamless with all of these agencies. I mean, this past summer in Macon, Georgia, as our reform sitting, I was getting ready for Shabbat, the rabbi looked at her window, noticed neo-Nazis standing there. Well, in literally a heartbeat, they were able to activate our network, and um, law enforcement was not only there, but law enforcement that knew what to do. So... That's the garden variety. And we were pretty well, I think, prepared and effective in responding. In the, the days since October 7th, we're at a whole new level. The threat level went up dramatically. And I think our communities also have sophisticated security protocols. Those have been increased. It just is necessary. And, you know, it doesn't mean that you have to be walking around with an Israeli flag to incur the kind of wrath or maybe even a violent uh, attack. You could actually just be wearing a kippah. You could be wearing a Jewish star. And simply identifying as a Jewish person was a set of assumptions. Now, of course, we also have this Muslim uh, Palestinian boy, six-year-old boy in Chicago, who was stabbed to death. And what, what was his crime? You know, he's part of a Muslim family. So we do have in America, hate is, is a big industry. And, um, you know, the kind of safety we're working on for our community, we'd like the wider community to also have that kind of safety. But this isn't a moment of panic. 
it's not a moment to say, well, let's stop being Jewish for the next year and, and then we can come back to it. We have people very proud of being Jewish. We're not going to stop going to our synagogues or to our schools or to our summer camps or our JCCs. But we want to be smart about this and we want our people to feel that it's safe. And you drop your two-year-old off at the synagogue nursery school, you want to know that there's a protocol that really is in this moment what's necessary. And I think we have that. And I know we're vigilant. We're never going to be you know, complacent about, well, I think we have a pretty good system. However our system works, we're going to keep improving it because that's also part of being in solidarity is living in, again, the people along the Gaza border in the communities that we know so well. And with the reach of rockets, we know who is on the front lines. But also, I think we also understand the interconnectedness of our Jewish communities. Uh, we are interconnected in all good ways and with all the challenges. That's an important thing for, I think, Israelis who have been very responsive to the reality of anti-Semitism and some of the hate and attacks we've seen. I, I love that this is a moment of mutual strengthening. We are marking five years to the terror shooting of Pittsburgh's Tree of Life Synagogue tomorrow. Can you describe to me in some ways, how the Jewish community has evolved, changed, shifted, and the relationship with Israel since then. Yeah, I just would. Ref I just remember when the attack happened on the Tree of Life Synagogue. I was here in Israel, and that Shabbat morning, before it all, un you know, unfolded, I was with our high school students at our Heller High program, about seventy of them, and we were having a psychological conversation at Shabbat lunch. You know, what, what, what's on your mind? And one student asked me, Rabbi Jacobs, um, have you personally experienced something anti-Semitic in the last you know, year? And I actually answered no. But then I thought, be a rabbi, Rick, be an be a educator. I said, you know what, let me ask all of you, I have 70 of you, how many of you have experienced in recent days, not you read about it, you experienced it, anti-Semitism in your communities. And they're from all over North America, little rural communities, big cities. Two-thirds of the hands went up. And they told stories. Because I, I asked them, I said, tell me more. In my school, in playing sports, in our community, that they personally experienced. And in that moment, again, not that I predicted what was going to happen that day in Pittsburgh or in the coming years, but already it signaled something was different. And the response of solidarity to that Tree of Life shooting. One of the things I, I always want to point out to people, on the Shabbat after the shooting, our synagogues overflowed, not just with our Jewish community, but with our interfaith partners. This had never happened in, in Jewish history. It didn't happen in the 1930s when, you know, Kristallnacht happened. The whole community didn't say, how do we support you? That's what happened in our community and in official levels with the government responses, but also in our community responses. I want to also appreciate how how amazing building those deep relationships is. And I think if there were any people in the wider Jewish community who didn't take seriously the threats of anti-Semitism, not after the Tree of Life you know, attack, and the shooter was not motivated by something happening in Israel-Palestine. He was angry about the Jewish community's care for the the immigrants and the refugees and all of the things that our community is very proud to do. And he was fueled by a lot of hate that, you know, the, the various conspiracy theories that are passed around through the centuries. So we also knew, for those that told us there's only threats on one side of the political spectrum, that also was, excuse me, 
we face it wherever it is, and we're going to take it seriously, but we're also not going to stop being proudly Jewish in our homes, in our communities. And that's true today. We've got a whole new set of protocols, new institutions with new strength, with new funding, and we're also proudly Jewish in public and in private. Rick, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been a, it's been an honor. It's a painful moment, but I, I so appreciate the ability to talk and to share the reflections about where we are. So thank you. Thank you. Five years ago, I was sent to Pittsburgh by the Times of Israel to provide on-site coverage of the aftermath of the deadly shooting of 11 Jews in the Tree of Life Synagogue. During the first Shabbat service following the shooting, a prominent member of the Pittsburgh Jewish community spoke. Beth Kisseliff, the wife of Rabbi Jonathan Perlman, who is a survivor of the attack, said, Our theology is that God gives people free will and human beings decide to do evil. The way we know the world is not coming to an end is the righteous Gentiles, she said. I am so grateful for all the righteous Gentiles here today. As the war will inevitably continue to heat up, we here in Israel are even more so relying on the righteous Gentiles of the world today. Special thanks to Charlie Summers for his help with the What Matters Now transcripts. This episode was recorded at Jerusalem's Nomi Studios. What Matters Now is produced and edited by The Pod Waves. If you have comments about this or other episodes, please drop us an email at podcast at timesofisrael.com. Until next time, we continue to pray for Shalom. Shalom.